Welcome to the Word Room. You're with Elizabeth Walton, speaking to Australian writers, talking about craft and writing. Possum-like inflorescence gestates beneath gums, cream, gold and brown. I tangle fingers in woolly hairs, belly, bottom, ears and mouth. Lisa Collier, thank you for joining us today in How to Order Eggs Sunny Side Up, you comment on class, on plant life ecologies and procreant journeys. Your debut collection, which you described to me as a spiky book, is a book that speaks to the body of a woman in ways that are often left out of everyday conversation. What was your inspiration for this theme and, and the title of the collection? Thanks, Elizabeth, and for that beautiful introduction. Um, okay, so... In terms of the inspiration, I think it's the kind of conversations that I felt were missing in my everyday life uh, with friends, with colleagues, even with family members. There were pressing things that I felt about my experience and I suspect about many people's experience, particularly women, um, that weren't being talked about, that were being left out of social discourse. And so I think the urgency was to find a place where I could have that conversation. And so I kind of call these poems a conversation. Um, so the kind of things I wanted that were pressing for me was this sense of being a woman without uh, children uh, for example, and the idea that not all, I don't know, I feel the representations in media, in literature, in society are all about that to be a real woman um, is to be reproductive and to be nurturing. So I guess I wanted to disrupt that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I also want to just... Uh, or if there were representations, particularly of the age, the ethnic, the barren, um, I found them to be unsatisfying. They were pitiful or they were antagonistic. And so I wanted a more complex, nuanced representation. Which um, you have achieved because, you know. Thank it, you. I, I think I, I likened it in our conversation before to what Willow Drummond um, describes so eloquently in Moonrass as maternal ambivalence because you're talking about fertility, fertility choices, infertility. Um, yeah, so was this a difficult topic for you to approach in, you know, in these new and challenging ways? Um, some parts were. I think one of the poems, I mean, writing, I've written, in terms of infertility, I've probably written about four poems and they come at it from different angles or maybe even five. One of the most stark poems, which is um, I 
two pregnancies and you tell me yours and I'll keep mum is probably the the one that I was unsure whether to include in the collection because it seems very stark even brutal and I was worried how that would be received um, but I decided to put it in anyway and my publisher didn't say that I couldn't so I thought okay just just go for it um, so the others weren't too bad but they were kind of liberating talking about it really and you know these are sort of things that I haven't even talked about previously to my own family because it felt so taboo or they sort of knew of it but I could never elaborate it was always and it's not like my family are very closed off we're we're very communicable we we talk a lot um and we're quite open about lots of topics but it was just this social taboo I think it's still not okay to talk about it it feels that way to me that it almost feels, I don't know, like you're, you've done the wrong thing and therefore later, like myself, if you try to have kids and you can't, it's almost like all karma. And no one's actually said that, but there's just that sense of it. Yeah, a sense that your own choices have had an impact and that mm. there's um, the guilt and shame involved mm. um, somehow because because the funny thing is, I mean, you, we, we, we might say that there's choice involved, but in actual fact perhaps there's not as much choice involved as you think or otherwise you wouldn't be in, you know, in the situation to be pursuing that choice. Um, I think one of my favourite lines in your work is where you say you'll find it in seeds and then you also say um plant kept like plant kept envelopes of dormant hope and I kind of uh -huh. you know I can't help but sort of see the connection between your descriptions of plant life and your discussions around fertility as well do you think that I'm off track there no not at all um and like even after my a uh, very senior cat died uh, a year ago, two years ago. Um, I had this really strong sense to nurture and so I planted this big veggie patch and just went way into it. So I think that it is a very um, human urge to want to care for things and nurture things and look after things. And I sort of think that that's, completely human I don't want to I don't want to say that that's a, a female thing I feel like that's limiting um and I don't think we should gender subscribe certain traits to to genders or or any other demographic markers because it's yeah it's limiting but yeah my garden is important to me I feel like I guess like writing as well it's a chance where I get to create something um, where if you can't do it with your own body, you can do it, I don't know, in the world, I guess. I think that's such in, it's something actually I've been really hungering to talk about too. I'm very interested in that context the, of nurturing um, as opposed to parenting and the sense of sort of ownership and, um, I don't know, sort of self realization of having your own children as opposed to 
nurturing in the world, nurturing animals, your cat, as you say, and nurturing food and flowers. Can you talk to us about your background in um, in, in growing food and flowers as well? As um, mm. yeah, yeah. So I first, I mean, I grew up in a house where we we did have my parents were gardeners and we had shorts and veggie patch and a beautiful garden so I was surrounded by that as a child we went bushwalking you know all of those sorts of things I think they were the first sort of impressions and then I kind of forgot about it my 20s 30s and it wasn't until my 40s where I I sort of went into this dark depression and my mother who is an avid gardener said to me get your hands in the dirt that's how she got through that's fantastic yeah it, it was, and it was a lifesaver, and that's exactly what I did. And then I don't really do things by halves. When I decide I'm going to do something, I just throw myself into it. So I ripped up all the cooch grass back in front of our house, planted a native garden. I did um, a horticulture traineeship with Kings Park, uh, the botanic gardens here in, in Perth, in Bulu. Um, and learnt all about native uh, flowers and, uh, yes, yeah, spent a couple of years there. Um, like I said, the veggie patch, yeah, I just loved it. And it was actually really important on another level because I'm not from Perth. Um, I'm actually from over east. I've lived in Sydney. I've lived in Adelaide. I've lived overseas. I've lived all over the place, um, never really grounded and and now I'm kind of settled here for the, the longest place I've ever lived and actually learning about native flora and planting it helped ground and connect me to this particular part of the world. And it was the first time I think that I really felt like I belonged somewhere to place. Mm-hmm. And I'm, yeah, and it was through um, gardening and nurturing nurturing the earth I guess wow and so that really does go to what we were talking about earlier about the sense yeah. of the yeah it's a I mean I don't want to get all woo-woo but I suppose that's what people would call the, the divine feminine of the of this the sense of um, nurturing beyond um, a sense of you know our own family we're nurturing in general nurturing in love um what do you think, what would you say is a woman now in a context of the world that we live in, in a context of water, of growing things, food, flowers, feral, farmed, plastic, species in decline? Who are we as women now? Mm-hmm. That's a big question. <laughs> well, I mean, firstly, I think that woman is a construct, Um you know, I follow Simone de Beauvoir's idea and whoever declares her a woman is a woman. I totally support that. I do push back at the term Mother Nature, although I kind of unravel myself because, <laughs> well, why do I push back? I push back, as I said earlier, that it kind of demarks, demarcates women as the nurturers. So that's why I push back at it. Yeah. Um, but in terms of humanity, I definitely subscribe to that sort of pagan idea that we are all interrelated, we're animals, we're nature, we're not separate. Mm. Um, But in terms of the way we treat the earth, I feel like it's the way we always 
we've treated and treat women um, with that sort of the virgin whore dichotomy. On one sense, we love it, but on the other hand, we hate it because we're hurting it constantly um, with our, you know, rampant consumerism, um, exploitation and use of the earth as resource. And I think humans still haven't got over the fact that, and I include myself in this, that it's not there for our benefit necessarily, but we've kind of got this arrogance that it is. Mm. Um, I don't know if I've gone off track. About that well, yet. I think that's really but, interesting because also too, you know, you're writing in a context where, you know, you you start your life out as a writer and then in a very, um, you know, money-pressured world where we're all involved in this participation of doing whatever it is that we're doing to to nature in the way that you've been talking about, you go yeah. and you get involved in working and life throws you into other spaces how did you come back into writing? And then when you did, when you arrived, what mm. was it that drew you to poetry? Yeah, okay. Yeah, um, exactly what you said. And I think too also because of the sort of childhood trauma, I just wanted to live um, when you come out of a sort of dark, deep time you just want to be in the moment. You just want to live and and work and love and party and I don't know just be in the present moment I guess you don't really want to reflect and dwell so there's that aspect that also kept me away as well as like you said just making money and surviving keeping a roof over your head all that sort of do that um so I came to it I had spent over 20 something years teaching with various breaks for example horticulture as I pointed out um, because teaching's hard <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I, I have to admit I had several nervous breakdowns during that, that stint. And then I got to this point where I had paid off my house after decades of working and I kind of saw in my career I was unable to secure permanent work because it's so unstable and precarious and I wanted to go part-time they wouldn't let me the particular job that I was in I'd started working again uh, writing again because my career life felt so futile I was working slaving like a dog and I just couldn't understand why because money didn't interest me I had enough now I'd you know, I didn't need a lot of money. I just ne needed enough to survive. And so I decided that now that I did finally have economic security and some money saved at that point, that I would now invest my money in myself and do what I wanted to do my entire life, which was to write because I looked at my life and I thought I've done everything I've ever wanted to do. So if I die tomorrow, it's fine, except write a book. Mm. And so I decided this was it. And so I did. I left my job, <laughs> my staple income wow. to run away and join the circus basically and become a poet. Mm. Um, and sorry, the second part of your question after that long answer was at first I thought it was memoir that I was writing. 
and I was in a memoir writing course and a fellow writer said to me, that sounds like poetry. And it's true. I love writing. Even when I'm writing prose, it's very lyrical. It's very rhythmic. And the penny just dropped and it was, I just ran with that. It was perfect because I just wanted to get the feeling. I wanted to tell it slant. I didn't want to tell it straight or tell the whole story. I just wanted to capture just moments of how it felt. Mm, that's beautiful because, and that's, yeah, when I was reviewing your work, I think we were talking earlier that um, that I had a sense that you were presenting your life as life occurs in real time. It doesn't occur in big stretches. It occurs in little spaces in between. Absolutely. And even one of those poems was about that space in between departure and arrival, what was happening in that moment. And I'm really interested in in those gaps, I guess. Mm -hmm. What was it like having your first poem published um, when you decided that you're going to toss it all in and go run off with the circus <laughs> and become yeah. an amazing poet? <laughs> It, yeah, it was it was a risk. I mean, I am a risk taker, I guess, and it's like, oh, well, all or nothing, give it a go. Um, it was amazing. And, in fact, to, to be honest, my goal, I said that I wanted to write a book, but that was never even a possible imagination for me. I was more than happy to have a poem published. I would have been more than happy. And so when I did, I was, I think I cried. It was just such an incredible experience. And then um, and then things just kept happening. Like I got into programs like the Westerly Writers Development Program and a residency, and I literally could not believe it. And so all I needed was that little bit of encouragement and I just ran with it because I thought, wow, this is so much more than I ever expected. So anything else is an absolute bonus. Um, so, yeah, I pinch myself constantly. <laughs> but it's amazing. amazing. I kind of think, too, that along the way, like, you know, if you, you're involved in this highly intensive writing craft that, many writers are involved in it's constantly sending out work sending out short stories sending out essays um but it yep. seems as though um you know you might have many short stories on rotation sending out to literary journals or whatever and only you know one now and then might get published whereas poems seem to be a sort of um faster uh you know, more more accessible way to get just that first thing published. I've noticed with the the West Words Academy that I've been doing in the last year that sometimes just the opportunity to get a poem out is perhaps a little a step more accessible sometimes as well. I don't know if that's true or not. But what was it like when you came to be doing the mentorship with Lucy Dugan? Uh, that was life-changing, really. To be honest, when I got in, so that was with the Westerly Writers Development Program, and when I got into that, that changed everything, going back to what you are saying about waiting. To be honest, it's really slow with poetry as well, <laughs> I think, for feedback. <laughs> and you can't, I've got a huge spreadsheet with that's yellow, red, and green, and green is accepted and they're few and far between. Red is the rejections, yellow's 
waiting and sometimes you wait six months it's it's really slow but I can understand everyone's working on a shoestring they're usually volunteering so it's the way it is but that program once I got into that I no longer became upset when I got rejections that changed it for me because that was such validation for me that I I didn't care anymore because I knew that my work had some value. Um, so that was super important. Working with Lucy was amazing. From the very first meeting, I think we spoke for four hours. Um, we just, and every time we meet, it's like, okay, get ready for a major talk fest. And we just hit it off. So we hit it off as friends straight away, as well as mentor mentee. Um, in terms of her mentoring, it was what's so good about Lucy is that she never tried to make me write like her or anybody else. All she did was observe what was what was working in my work and what was my voice. And that really gave me the confidence to trust my voice and to run with it and develop my own unique style and not necessarily try and be anything else. And just the discussions over books and films and artistic process were really important. Um, she just totally got it and it was completely validating. And with just such a light, deft hand and only ever if I was really drowning going, ah, help, you know, she, she might gently nudge me in the right direction it was a very gentle process but so vital and so uh career changing uh for me wow that sounds amazing that that you were um aligned with her that you know she was that you were put with her as a mentor it, i'm so glad that happened <laughs> that just sounds oh, like a beautiful experience it um, it was amazing yeah. And, and go, still is, still is. And we're still yeah. friends. Oh, yeah. And she still helps me. She's so, she's so generous, so giving. Yeah. I'm right. just in awe. And yeah. uh, going back to your spreadsheets, I think that must say more about <laughs> than anything else because my, my, my spreadsheets are full of um, short stories and, and essays that are just still sitting there, but the poems seem to go out. Yeah. Obviously. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> i got to listen to Well, that. that's good. <laughs> um so I I just um yeah can you your your publisher your, the cover of your book oh my god talk talk to us I know <laughs> it's an amazing it's funny you know because oh Phil Phil Day who's a visual artist as well as a publisher he's the renaissance man um the, the most personable personable publisher you could ever have it was all everything was done over the phone um with the spreadsheet with the manuscript in front so I really loved that process and in terms of the artwork so he says that he doesn't paint to the book which is amazing because I feel like this cover is absolutely perfect for my book. Um, and he just goes, oh, I'm working on this painting and I think it might suit your book. And so he showed me and I went, wow. And this was before, you know, how the, the tail is cut off at each end, the yeah. raw red. 
it was before that and I thought oh that's that's really beautiful I know and then maybe a month later he goes oh I've been working on the painting a bit more and it's changed a bit I said oh yeah show me and he showed me and I have to say I was a bit confronted by it (laughs) which is kind of funny considering my poems some of them are quite confronting um and I was like oh and I'm not sure I liked it at first. I was a little bit like, oh, I think that's too much. <laughs> you know, there's sort of bleeding. It's yeah, called it's, shed, yeah. It might be part dingo or part spring lamb and it's sort of yeah. got raw, exposed, yet highly textured sort of yes. surface. It took me a week or two. I think I was just stunned. Um, but now I love it. It's just perfect. Oh, it totally works with my work because it's about letting go. It's Mm. about shedding an old identity, uh, reinventing a new one. It's about bleeding on the page. It's letting it all hang out. It's about going to the source of trauma. Mm. Um, It's about being an animal. It's about being part of nature. But then there's also that abstract quality about it. It's rough, which, you know, the spiky book, uh, the spiky poems. There's also a sense that it sort of doesn't start or end. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So it's just it could not be more perfect. It's just unbelievable that it hasn't been specifically designed for this collection. But... That's the way he works. And yeah, I think he's great. And the whole layout is all his vision, like with the blank pages, lots of white space to really give you time to, um, I guess, meditate or reflect on each poem without too much busyness. Yeah, and there's I'm looking at um, Reagent, and it, which is sort of a, a shaped, sort of like a concrete poem in a sense. And yeah. rather than sort of having other shapes on the page next to it, there is that space given to it so it can breathe and have its own mm. um, impact on the eye as, as it's being read. And I'm wondering, would you like to read something today? Oh, sure. Yes, I, I would love to read something. So... Maybe I'll read uh, Floral Bodies. I feel like that captures a few different aspects about what we were talking about. And, yeah, and this poem was inspired by a native flower we have in WA called a possum banksia or a woolly banksia is the common name. Banksia bowery is the scientific. And it's this really large banksia flower, really large, sort of the size of a possum. And I had this urge to to hold it, uh, to nurture it, and it kind of um, inspired this poem and a memory of, I guess, a sliding door moment. What if? Anyway, I'll just read it. Floral Bodies. A possum-like inflorescence gestates beneath gums, cream, gold, and brown. I tangle fingers in woolly hairs, belly, bottom, ears, and mouth. Like Lanugo in utero, I count your parts, like Ferdinand Bauer's Banksia illustrations, anatomically correct, 
floral head, stems and bracts, fingers and toes. Seasonally, I imagine I trod a different path. I follow the natal trajectory of Artemis Arrow and I keep you intact. A whimsical thought to feminine birth. I bury our placental bond, the interface of our intimacy, swaddled in tea tree infused bark. But I return to accuracy when the blunt point pierces my womb, a wooden cone whose nut stops growing. My body burns, a follicle bursts, and you evacuate, unable to handle crisis. And I evolve teeth. amazing thank you it was actually a pivotal point because I tried to write about well I'd had an abortion and a miscarriage within four months and so it kind of captured both and I've been trying to write that for quite a, a while in different forms and when I wrote that it kind of felt like the pivotal it was like that's it that's the one so wow. it, yeah it was a very important moment and it was probably the poem, the first poem I felt proud of, you know. It's like, oh, yeah, this is a poem <laughs> that I feel proud of. It, this, it, it's, um, you know, it's profoundly um, moving and personal and raw experiences that you're sharing and, like, in, in your discussion but also in the work. And then you're also bringing that back to that sense of, you know the 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 floral sense and the the Australian sense and the tea tree sense and the yes beautiful it yeah thank you thank you very much um Lisa in this series we've been talking to everybody about a meal that they would bring for the characters in the book and I'm wondering what you would bring uh, as a meal for the characters in your book, which are, you know, the poems themselves, if you see those as characters, what is it that you would bring? <laughs> okay. Um, well, there's so many. All right. At the moment, I'm a little bit obsessed with making Spanakopita. So I think I'm going to make them that. And it's going to be the spirally one, you know, when you wrap it in Philo and then do that sort of Mandela shape because that goes with the cover of my book and it's circular um, and it's full of green stuff with and I put three types of herbs and I'd even make homemade ricotta to put inside um, and wow. use the lemon juice from the garden yeah and the spinach <laughs> will you bring the spinach from the garden yeah and I could uh, grow the spinach so the, the green stuff will come from the garden how about that I love, that. I love <laughs> the that. parsley the coriander yeah if you were here I would be bringing you the spinach from my garden to share oh lovely I've seen your garden it looks amazing <laughs> lots of flowers and lots of native plants yeah. as well and, and, and a lot of Beautiful. vegetables um, 
which beautiful. is I think also why I was so drawn to your work. Lisa, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us today. I am so grateful for the opportunity to speak with you. Um, and I look forward to reading um, the next amazing part of your poetry writing journey. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Elizabeth. It's been such a pleasure uh, talking to you and getting to know you. Thank you so much for this opportunity.